0: Enjoy. I did. There's a good chance that you at some time or another sat in a Sunday school where a teacher used a flannel graph to try to bring some of the stories from the Bible to life. I mean, it's this visual aid technology, you know, from decades ago and for for generations now. I mean, for at least a hundred years, teachers have been using this kind of visual visual aids to help young children understand the stories of the Bible. and as I've been working our way through this series and preparing these messages, I can't help but have my own memory triggered from time to time about some of the sweet people in my little home church in South Texas that used the flanograph to teach these stories to me. I remember this, this sweet church lady, Betty Herring. She's, she's in her nineties now and, and you don't know her but you know the type. You know somebody like her. She's in her 90s. But back then when I was a child and she was in her late 50s and early 60s, it was long after her own kids had grown out of the Sunday school years. In fact, they'd grown up and were raising kids of their own. But there was Miss Betty. Week in and week out. Sitting on those chairs that are too small for 60-year-olds down in the children's ministry area. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, the table that you, no adult can get their knees under that thing. You know, Miss Betty was down there and she was teaching these stories on the flannel graph to kids. That they weren't her kids. It was, it was other people's kids. It was me. And after I graduated from Miss Betty's class, I moved on to Miss Nancy's class and Nancy Wright. And, and then after that, I got to go be in a class with June Casey. And then I got to be in a class with Linda Franklin. And I, and I noticed that as I think about it, none of these ladies, and it, it, it was amazing how consistently it was the women of the church who were teaching me these lessons. And none of these ladies had kids in the Sunday school program anymore. In fact, each of them, Each of them could have said, no, I've been there and done that. You know, each of them could have been my grandmother. But God was using these women in powerful ways to engage the imaginations of me and other young children like me and to build the foundation of our understanding of Scripture. And for that, I am eternally grateful. In fact, as I think back to all of the effort and the energy and the attention and the creativity that they invested in those lessons, it is so profoundly inspiring to me to think about how those ladies and their dedication is still making an impact. It's still making a difference in the life of the church. In fact, I mean, for one, they're part of my faith story, which is part of what brings me to stand right here before you and speak about the the Bible and to be able to tell these stories to you. But it's not just me. It's not just me that they inspired. They inspired hundreds, hundreds of young people. And when I think about these ladies... Miss Betty and Miss Nancy and Miss June and Miss Linda and the other teachers I had, I can't help but be grateful for the way that God took their effort. God took their little offering, what they had to give and multiplied it into a generational impact, which is why talking about the faith of the next generation is so important for us here at Heritage. And I hope, I hope that wherever you are in your faith story, there's somebody Along the line, who took an interest in investing in your spiritual. Life. Now, we talk about it all the time here, that everybody's in a different place on the journey, right? Everybody's in a different spot in this spiritual life. And there's some of you who had an experience like me. And when I talk about Miss Betty and Miss Nancy and Miss Linda and Miss June, you've got your own names that you can plug in. And you can tell the stories about the people who used the flannel graph to teach you these lessons. But maybe your spiritual timeline was different. Maybe your spiritual journey had a different pace or a different trajectory or different... Different starting point. Could be that maybe somebody in your spiritual history, maybe it was a youth pastor or a campus minister or a Bible study leader, somebody that took an interest in helping you find an on-ramp and begin to understand something about God's revelation of Himself to us. Or maybe, maybe in your life there was a special family member. Maybe there was a, a grandfather or a mom, or an aunt, somebody who took a special interest in being a spiritual resource for you, an encouragement for you, or maybe, maybe this is the beginning of the journey for you right now. Maybe you're just checking this stuff out, and you haven't yet experienced the kinds of faith building conversations and studies and and, and lessons that would help you to build that strong foundation, but you're beginning the journey, and praise God for that. I'm so thrilled for you. Wherever you are on the faith journey, I'm hopeful that the lesson we're looking at today, the story from the Old Testament we're examining together today is going to inspire your confidence in God's plan and provision for your life. Because what we're going to look at today is part of an old familiar story that many of you heard parts of this on the flannel graph, but we're going to talk about how God works through ordinary people to accomplish what his children need. If you got a Bible or the app on your phone and you want to join us as we work our way through this story, we're beginning in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus is the second book in the entire Bible, the second book in the Old Testament. Testament. And if you've been following along in this series so far, you know that we're skipping ahead a ways from the last time I taught or last time I preached two weeks ago when we were talking about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God chose Abraham and Sarah to be the parents of innumerable descendants who were going to go on to be a blessing to other people. Well, after that, A few generations have passed in the rest of the book of Genesis that we're not covering in this series. In fact, this amazing story happened at the end of Genesis where Abraham's great-grandson, a guy named Joseph he endured a totally chaotic series of events in his life. It's like, it's a you know stranger than fiction kind of story. But eventually, Joseph ends up being installed as the prime minister of Egypt, which was the most powerful country in the world at that time. And God gave Joseph special insight and awareness about a coming famine. And Joseph was able to help the country be prepared ahead of time by stockpiling grain in mass reserves so that they could be uh, prepared and adequately you know have enough food to go around and during that saga during Joseph's life his siblings his brothers his father his extended family they came as his guests they migrated to Egypt from Canaan to escape the famine that they were facing up there and they were warmly welcomed in Egypt because they were relatives of Joseph the second most powerful person in the most powerful country on the entire planet at that time. But then as time passed, as time went on, as the years went by, Joseph's generation, his father, his brothers, their children, they began to pass away, but their descendants stayed in Egypt. Their descendants continued to multiply and populate and grow into a sizable, a sizable population of people there in Egypt. And then as time went on even more, public opinion public awareness about the origin of the Israelites in Egypt began to fade away. In fact, Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says, Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph and didn't know anything about what Joseph Had done. Okay, you're getting the picture here that there's been enough water under the bridge, there's been enough time passed, enough transitions of power that now the king of Egypt doesn't remember the hero stories of Joseph's life. He doesn't remember that three, four generations ago or more, there was this guy who helped to save the entire nation from starving in a famine. He just knows that there's all of these Israelite people living among him. In verse 9, Pharaoh says to his people, this is Pharaoh hanging out at his castle next to the Nile River, and Pharaoh says to his people, I don't think we're talking about the entire nation, we're talking about his cabinet, his officers, the people who work for him, and he says, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us, and they're stronger than we are, and we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, then the Israelites will join our enemies and fight against us and they will escape from the country. It's troubling language. It's fearful language. It's paranoid language. They will escape from our country, Pharaoh's concerned about. You don't have to be of much of a historian to look at these couple of verses and recognize some familiar political patterns, some narratives that repeat themselves time and time again again, throughout human history. I mean, what do we have here? A head of state, the leader of Egypt, likely the most powerful country in the world at that time, as I've mentioned, and he's worried that the immigrant population is getting out of control. He's concerned that maybe he might be losing his ability to control where this story goes. And he's so worried, in fact, that he gathers his cab, cab and gets them together because he wants to hatch a plan about how they're going to control the number of immigrants in their country, the immigrants that he's afraid of. And so maybe it's no big surprise, given the arc of human history, it's no big surprise that the solution that they arrive at together is that they're going to take these immigrants and turn them into their slaves, which is what the next verse says happened. Chapter 1, verse 11, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pattam and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. And the more alarmed, the more panicked, the more worried the Egyptians became so the Egyptians escalated things. They worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made the Israelites' lives bitter. They forced them to mix mortar and to make bricks and to do all of the work in the fields. The Egyptians were ruthless in their demands. And this situation is setting up a grand intervention. We're about to get to the story in the Exodus timeline, in the narrative. We're about to get to the birth of one of the most famous characters in all the Bible, a guy named Moses. This is the story that I saw on the flannel graph when I was growing up. The story about Moses being born. And we're going to get there. Moses is a central figure in God's story. Moses would be the representative that God would send to rescue the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. But there's a backstory. There's a, a prelude to the Moses' birth story that's probably a little bit too confusing for the kids. It's probably a little bit too graphic for the children. So we didn't teach this one on the flannel graph. This is the story of two slave women named Shifra and Puah. One of them's name means beautiful, and the other one's name means sparkling or shiny. Verse 15 says, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. Now it's hard for me to imagine as my mind tries to fill in the blanks, what it would have been like for these two women to appear in person in front of Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful country in the world. But verse 15 says, the king of Egypt gave this order to these two women. He said, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, this is what midwives do. They are assistants in the birthing process. He says, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. And if the baby is a boy, kill him. And this is part of why we don't talk about this in the, you know, maybe in the three-year-old's class. It's a little traumatizing. He says, if the baby is a boy, kill him. And if the baby's a girl, let it live. And it's fascinating to think about the kinds of lengths, the kinds of decisions that somebody might make when they're being controlled by panic and fear, by paranoia. I mean, Here's somebody who's so concerned about being overrun by the immigrant population that he's now willing to kill off the next generation of his workforce, who he has enslaved. It's an interesting dichotomy, but I think it's even more challenging for us to imagine the intimidation that these two women must have been feeling in that conversation. For us to imagine, I mean, these two women, they're called to stand before the king, the leader of the known world, really. And I'm sure they wondered as they walked through those doors, as they entered that courtyard, I'm sure they wondered if they were about to be assaulted or if they were about to be abducted or if they were about to be abused or if they would be executed. I'm sure they wondered if they would ever walk out of that building alive. But instead they go in and they receive a direct command. They receive a direct order from the king to help Pharaoh manage his own fear by carrying out his evil plans for immigrant population control. And here's these two women. What are they going to do? These are women who, by all appearances, seem powerless in that society. They're childless females from the slave population. By all appearances, they would be powerless in their society. But these two courageous women decided together that they knew what they had to do. Verse 17 says, because the midwives feared God, when they went away from Pharaoh and had a conversation together, it says, because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. It's a beautiful story, right? I mean, it's a story of courage. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of faith. They rebelled against the king. They disobeyed a direct command, not a law they had heard about, not something that was written someplace. The king had called them to his throne room and said, here's what you have to do, and they disobeyed his command. Disobeyed the instructions of the most powerful man in the world at that time. And it wasn't long before their disobedience was discovered. And so verse 18 says that eventually, the king of Egypt called the midwives back for another visit. And I'm sure at this point, they were terrified. The king called for the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? And I wonder if they plotted their answer ahead of time or if they just had to think on their feet. But here's the story they came up with. They said the Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're more vigorous. And they have their babies so quickly that we can't even get there in time. That's a fascinating tale, but you and I know it's not the truth, right? You and I know they're telling a lie. You and I know that they're, they're fibbing. They're misrepresenting what's happening. We already know that Shifra and Puah decided, they made a conscious choice, that they weren't gonna kill the boys. But here they are, they're called to account, they're called to explain themselves in Pharaoh's throne room and they make up a story, but it's not just any story. I want you to notice it's a story that throws a little shade at the Egyptians too, right? It's a story that kind of makes fun of the Egyptian women. A story that suggests that, well, the Hebrews are just a tougher, tougher lot. They're just a little bit stronger. I mean, they're being pretty bold to walk in and make a statement like this in Pharaoh's throne room. It's a wonder Pharaoh believed their story at all. It's a wonder that Pharaoh let them live after the way they insulted the Egyptian women with their story. But these two women who were at the bottom of the power structure in Egypt, they used their little bit of influence their little bit of opportunity. They used it to do God's will and to provide for God's chosen people. And verse 20 says, God saw what they did. Verse 20 says that God saw their disobedience and disregard to the Pharaoh. God heard, God listened to the story that they told about these stronger Hebrew women. And verse 20 says, God blessed them for it. Verse 20 says, God was so good. God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And don't miss this part. This is maybe my favorite part of the story. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Because they feared God, because of their decision to put God's will, God's desire, God's instruction ahead of that of the Pharaoh. God gave them families of their own. And I wish I knew more detail about this. I wish I knew the ages of Shifra and Puah. I wish I knew if they had tried to have children before this and couldn't or or what the situation was. But the picture of these two women being blessed with children, it just makes for a satisfying conclusion to their section of this story. And I've got to mention, my favorite aspect of this entire story is that we get to know Shifra and Puah's names, but we have no idea what Pharaoh's name is. Pharaoh's just a title. Pharaoh means king. There's a lot of pharaohs. We don't know this guy's name. Disappears in history. There's a lot of pharaohs, but we don't get to know which one this is because he stood against God's people. He threatened their children. Pharaoh's name is lost in the annals of time. But Shifra and Puah's names are recorded and they're remembered. And here we are thousands of years later talking about them. We get to hear their names because God used Shifra and Puah to write his story. Of course, the story from Pharaoh's perspective wasn't over yet. Pharaoh was more concerned. He had to try a new approach, a new strategy, to, try to since he couldn't get the Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work. And so he went back to his cabinet, back to the people who worked for him, the officers who followed his instructions. And he ordered them to carry out his evil plans for them. He said, every time a new Hebrew baby boy is born, I want you to find that baby and throw it in the river. And so there was this looming threat facing the Hebrews, but God was still orchestrating their deliverance. And then we get to chapter 2, and that's where Moses is born. And his mother, her name is Jochebed. She has a baby boy, baby Moses, and she knows that this baby's special. She knows this baby is precious. And so she tries to hide him as long as she possibly can. She nurses this baby for about 90 days. But then at the end of that time, it's becoming more and more difficult to hide the existence of a baby and she knows that as soon as his existence is discovered that, she'll, that he'll be taken away from her and he'll be as good as dead and so Moses but Moses mother does something very brave very courageous she builds a miniature boat for her baby boy now probably probably when you heard this story told the first time or when you read it in your pa- in your translation in English just now probably your translation says that she made a basket. That's what we call it, a Moses basket, right? I mean, you can go to like Babies R Us right now and buy a Moses basket for your kid to sleep in, you know? We've always heard it called a basket in English, but I wanna tell you something fascinating that the Hebrew word that's used here, it's not the word for basket, it's the same word that we use for Noah's Ark. She built her son a miniature ark and placed it in the river in the hopes that the ark could carry him to safety. And God arranges it so that Pharaoh's daughter discovers the child and hatches a plan to adopt him as her own son. But guess what? We don't ever find out the name of Pharaoh's daughter. We just know the name of Moses' mom, Jochebed, because God used Jochebed to write a chapter in his story. My plan in this sermon, from the beginning of the series, as I outlined all the stories we were gonna cover, my plan was to cover more ground in this sermon. Originally, I intended for us to breeze through the stories of Shifra and Puah, and then move on to Exodus chapter three, where we find the, another famous flannel graph story, the story of Moses at the burning bush. This is Moses having all grown up from being the little baby by the side of the river. I intended to tell you quickly the stories of the midwives and the stories of the the birth and the being in the reeds in the river. I intended to breeze through all of that and get to the Exodus chapter 3 story about the burning bush. Maybe you've seen a, a, a rendition of this story before. Maybe you saw Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, or the DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt. And if you do, then maybe you remember this significant scene. God appears to Moses in the wilderness in the form of a bush that appears to be on fire. And as Moses approaches the bush to see what's going on, God begins a conversation and appoints Moses to be God's spokesperson who would go to Pharaoh and negotiate the Israelites' freedom. It's a landmark milestone moment in the biblical narrative. It's an important one to tell on the flannel graph. And in the midst of that conversation, one of the most memorable parts is that Moses is really hesitant the whole time. Moses doesn't feel qualified. He doesn't feel prepared, doesn't feel gifted, doesn't feel positioned, doesn't feel equipped to go and be successful negotiating the freedom of a group of people from the most powerful man in the world. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses raises this objection. He says, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I? Like, what business do I have leading the people of Israel out of Egypt? This is Moses feeling absolutely ill-equipped and unqualified for the task that he's being asked to perform. But God gives this one answer in verse 12 and says, I will be with you. And I wanted to dive deeper into this story. I wanted to dive deeper today into the story of the chapter 3 episode with the burning bush but the further I went in my study this week the more convicted I felt that what I really needed to tell you was the names of these women. Shifra and Puah and Jochebed. And I'm not just telling you their names and their stories because they're among the few women whose stories have been preserved from ancient times although that is significant and it is important but i'm telling you these names and i'm telling you their stories because i want to encourage you for today about how god works powerfully through ordinary faithful people i want to encourage you today that the stories of shifra and puah and jochebed are not outlier stories in the story of God, that these have something in common with God's standard operating procedure. As I reflect on the way that I learned these very stories myself, as I remember the flannel graph at my little church in South Texas and hearing these stories, I can look back on that now and realize that God was using some faithful, ordinary people. June and Betty, and Nancy, and Linda. God was using some faithful, ordinary people to accomplish something much bigger than themselves, to continue the progress of a story that was being told and disseminated and shared with many more people than they would ever have the chance to speak to. As I look back on these stories and all of the other stories that come after it in the scripture, we see this pattern emerging that God consistently chooses the people that nobody expects God to choose, that God works through people like Gideon, like David, the runt of the litter, the youngest of all of his brothers, that God consistently chooses the people that feel ill-equipped, ill-prepared, unassuming. God works through regular, ordinary, faithful people to accomplish his world-changing purposes. And sometimes, sometimes the people are so ordinary, so normal, that you don't even hear about them. I read the story recently about a a guy who's recognized as a saint, lived in the in the third, fourth century, 1700 years ago or so, on the coast of the Black Sea in Turkey, and he was a gardener. His name was Phocas, P-H-O-C-A-S, Phocas, and they called him Phocas the gardener. That's what he was known for doing. Raised vegetables, raised fruit, but the reason that he was so well-known was because he raised those vegetables. He, he, he planted that garden so that he could care for the people in his community who didn't have enough food. He was known as somebody who was constantly sharing what he had, Phocas the gardener. Only eventually later in his life, there came a time when there was a widespread persecution of Christians when the government started to crack down on this mysterious, suspicious religious group that they didn't understand anything about, that wouldn't pledge allegiance to the Caesars and to the kings. And so eventually there came a day when a group of soldiers was dispatched to go and find Phocas to come to his house and to execute him on the spot. And this this group of soldiers shows up at Phocas' house, beautiful place right there on the shore of the Black Sea in Turkey. And they show up and they're asking who's who, and they finally find him. And before they take his life on the orders that they had, Phocas insists that that they let him prepare them a meal. And he goes and he picks a bunch of fresh vegetables, a bunch of fresh fruit out of the garden, and he cooks a meal for his executioners. And after he's treated them so hospitably, they, they start talking amongst themselves and they say to each other, you know, we could just go back and tell, the, tell the, our superiors we couldn't find him. But he offers himself up. He offers himself up. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the kind of impact that that had on the spiritual thought processes of the men who were there experiencing that extraordinary obedience, that extraordinary hospitality. You see, God works powerfully through ordinary faithful people. And it may be somebody whose story never gets told, Maybe there's some people in your life that you've watched and it's just been their quiet goodness, their quiet gentleness, their silent self-control and selflessness, selflessness that has drawn you to their story. Because you've been so impressed, so impressed at how they don't seem to be in it for themselves. They, they just seem to want to do what God's asked them to do. My family's been the recipient of this recently. My mother-in-law went through knee replacement surgery two weeks ago, and she's recovering well at home. But over the last couple of weeks, we've experienced the love and the compassion and the hospitality of families from our church family who have sent cards and sent emails and called and text messages and brought food and come to visit, who have done all of these things that nobody's ever going to give them fanfare about. Nobody's ever going to know that nobody else is ever going to know that it happened. But they showed up. Quiet, faithful, obedience. Just trying to do what God would have them do. You know, throughout this story, this series of stories, this flannel graph favorite series, we keep coming to each story. First, we did Noah and the ark. Then we did the Tower of Babel. Then we did Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. This week, we're doing this story about Shephra, Puah, Jochebed, Moses, And every week we come to these stories and we talk about how it would be really easy. It would be really easy to just look at what the people are doing and to think about a moral lesson that we might draw, uh, an example that we might live out. But I keep trying to remind us that the question we need to ask ourselves when we approach these stories is not what are the people doing, it's what's God doing? How's God acting? Who is God in this story? What is this story trying to tell us about God's character? And I want us to look at Exodus one, two, and three here and see that God's trying to show us that he works through people like us. He works through people who feel feel ill-prepared, unqualified, ill-equipped, not special. He works Through people like us. In fact, this is always how God has worked. Throughout the Old Testament, some of the stories I've already mentioned, God continues to do this. But then the New Testament comes along and Jesus shows up. And Jesus, God in the flesh, showing us an example, a vivid illustration, hands-on demonstration of what God's character is like. You know what Jesus does? He starts inviting people who feel ill-prepared and unworthy and equipped, He starts inviting the people that nobody else was recruiting as their disciples or their mission workers. He starts inviting people that had other careers doing blue-collar stuff. He starts inviting people who didn't go to Hebrew school. He starts inviting people who are not religiously trained. He starts inviting normal, everyday People, And when those people choose to live their lives in faithful obedience to Jesus' instruction and invitation, then Jesus starts changing the community. Jesus starts changing groups of people. Jesus starts changing hearts through ordinary, faithful people. And I just wonder, I just wonder what Jesus could do through us, what Jesus could do through you, if you decide you're going to make yourself available Because I believe, I believe deep down that God has not asked any one of us to accomplish something that God hasn't already resourced us to do. God's not asking us, not asking anything of us that God hasn't already prepared us to do. Just like Shifra and Pua had this challenge in front of them, this big decision, and yet They knew what they had to do, and God blessed it. I just wonder, I just wonder how God might continue to utilize our little investments, our little preparation, our little creativity, and turn it into something big. I'm living proof of how God has been doing that for at least a a few decades because of the work of Betty and Nancy and Linda and June, and I bet some of you have a similar story about the investments that were made in you. And I want you to know, this is how God works. God takes ordinary stuff, ordinary people, ordinary resources, ordinary schedules, and does big things with them when God's invited in.